Good morning, everyone. It's not the way you want to start. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Four years ago, on the 11th of August, 2013, we had our first Sunday gathering, as Brendan was saying, at the Botanic Gardens. And I remember the first scripture I read that day was out of Zephaniah 4, verse 10. It said, do not despise these days of small beginnings. And four years comes and goes very, very quickly. Uh, we've been married five years. I just think decades are going to fly by. I'm going to be 70 before I know it. But it's really cool just thinking back and reminiscing a little bit about what God has done over the last four years. And um, just the people he's added, the things he's done in some of our lives. And it would just actually be great if you've got any testimonies. I'd love you to tell me or email me or one of the elders. Just let us know some of the things that God has done inside of you. So we can almost celebrate that as a church and just celebrate the work of God. But um, what we decided is we kind of had a relaunch recently as we launched out as Harbor City Church. We weren't going to do this crazy big birthday thing. So if you celebrate everything all the time, really, uh, you're not celebrating anything. So what we thought is today, we've got some cakes, we've got some balloons, we're going to have a bit of a party afterwards. But we thought maybe a really significant way that we could celebrate this moment is by installing or ordaining some new deacons. So one of the things we've said for a long time is Harbor City Church isn't built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifice of many. And as Brendan said, Justin's example of those hours spent every second week packing and unpacking the bucky just so that we could do what God was calling us to do is a massive thing. And I want to thank every one of you who's played any role in any way in the last four years of this church. There's a group of people that I want to call up this morning that we're going to lay hands on and pray for and set them in their kind of role as deacons in this church. Now, Harbor City is led by Jesus, and Brendan, Shane, and I, the eldership team, kind of lead this church under him. But we've got this team of leaders who really help us by serving and leading in the life of this community to do everything that we do. And the word deacon really comes from the Greek word meaning servant. They are servant leaders in the life of this church who lead life groups, who lead worship teams, who lead, um, I guess, our Sunday uh, serving teams, Sunday serving captains. And we've also got some people involved in leading the justice ministries of this church, and there could be some other things too. But these people play a key role in what we do, and really we couldn't do everything we do without them. And if you want to read up a little bit more about the qualifications for deacons, you can out of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Maybe you feel even this morning God's speaking to you about leading in a new way, serving in a new way in the life of this church. But I thought just the big idea of what a deacon is from Scripture in those two passages is that deacons are an example to the church in their life in their speech, and how they handle alcohol and money, and how they handle their marriages or singleness and their sexuality, and how they parent and lead in their homes. And really the idea is deacons are people whose lives have been shaped and transformed by the gospel. They are mature examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and they are using their time, their talents, their treasures to build up the church and to serve and lead in different ways. So these men and women are actually laying down their lives so that God can do the work that he is wanting to do in us and through us as a community. Now, we haven't done this in the last two and a half years. Actually, we've only done this once in the four-year history of this church. So this is like a really big and significant moment for us, actually, as a church. So I thought if I could call forward our deacon team to um, come up here. If you're still a little bit reluctant, Sandra has been like the most reluctant to be acknowledged as a deacon person in the world. Could I ask Wazi, Zut, Josie, Christo and Marika, Ayanda, Callum, Tom and Courtney, Tabani, Sandra, and Eugene to come forward? If there is someone whose name I've left off that list, you can come forward too.
guys are all going to this side, eh? Okay? We'll do it that way. <laughs> I'm going to be outside before you know it, you guys. But really, can you guys go to the other side? Otherwise, we're going to be like curling around. But Harbour City, these are your new deacons. And I think they really deserve a huge round of applause. Like a loud, woohoo, kind of round of applause. So we are a growing church. God is constantly adding new people to us. And really, we need more gifted and willing leaders to serve in the roles that these guys play in the life of this church. But what we're going to do is um, I'm going to call Brens, Kim, and Shell up. We're going to pray for them, lay hands on them, and set them into office. We'd love you to pray, too, as we go through this prayer, for the Spirit to fill them and empower them and give them wisdom and grace for the jobs they've got. So can I call you guys up? And let's pray for these guys together. Lord, I thank you for the gift of leaders in the life of Harbor City Church. I thank you for these men and women that you've been adding to us as a church, that we can do all that you have called us to do. And Lord, we pray at this time that you would put your hand on them and that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. We really pray for your wisdom and your grace. We pray for your power. We pray for you to fill them with your love. We pray for everything that they need, Lord God that you would give it to them. We pray you would fill them. We pray for years of fruitful ministry ahead of them, Lord, in homes, here on Sundays, with the people they spend time with and invest into. We thank you for their willingness, Lord God, to play the part that they are playing and to serve in the ways that they are serving. And we ask you, Lord, for more. Would you hear the secret desires of their hearts, the prayers that they are praying, and would you meet them there? And we pray that they would all come to know you and love you and enjoy you more and more and more. So thank you for the gift of these people, Lord. We thank you for leaders who are a gift to your church. And we pray for many more deacons to be added to this church in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. One more round of applause and kind of like woot woot for these guys. You guys can take your seats. As I was praying and preparing for today, I did think to myself that maybe some of you are sitting there and you almost feel like the Holy Spirit is like tugging at you and commissioning you a little bit and saying, I'm calling you to that. I'm calling you to lead. I'm calling you to play a different role. There's something I'm wanting to do with you. And I'd love you to actually fuss that through with God. Say, God, what does that look like? And maybe come and chat to Brendan or I. We can see how we can facilitate some of that stuff. But happy birthday, Harbor City Church. We're in a new series called Transformed. And um, I thought it was really fitting today, as you saw Eugene. He's actually wearing the colors of the brand for the series. That mustard jersey and everything. He's really looking very swag today. But I just thought I'd pray for us and I'd get into this topic for this morning. Lord, thank you for what you are doing in us as a church. And we open our hearts to you and we welcome you in and pray that you would speak to us and teach us and lead us. And we pray that actually we would be transformed, Lord God, from the inside out to become more like your son. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this is a new series for us, and I think some of you could have been in church for a long, long time, and you haven't really dealt with too much of the emotional discipleship stuff of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I do just want to say up front, this is not a self-help series that we're doing. That is not the idea of Transformed. This is a series on discipleship. This is a series on seeing God come into our hearts and our emotions and transform us from the inside out, and actually that we would learn what it looks like to follow Jesus, not just physically or spiritually, but emotionally emotionally and internally too. And we're really trusting in this series that we would be discipled in our inner man, in our hearts, souls, and minds, and that we would learn what it looks like to follow Jesus and be formed into the image of Jesus completely and holistically as individuals and as a church. And one of the things I thought that was so interesting and significant, and I hope this raises our faith, is that as we've prayed and prepared for the series, and we first decided last September that we would be doing this, it's almost like God has been leading us and building up to this point. And kind of some of the things that people have said they believe that God is saying is that this series is something of a foundation for the future, for what God is wanting to do with us down the line. So I really do want to encourage you to engage with the series, to open your hearts to maybe a Listen to some of the sermons that you might miss over the next while, because we'd love God to take us as a church on a journey together of emotional and spiritual transformation. And one of the passages that I've read through again and again and prayed through has been Psalm 51 verse 7. I did share this with us a while ago, but I just wanted to share it again as an intro this morning. It says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And I think of the word purge. You know, if you're a visitor here today, what is up with that? What is up with this word purge? I watched a trailer for a movie called The Purge. It's a bit of a horror movie where one night of the year, everyone takes to the streets and they literally purge uh, the country. It's not a great looking film. I don't recommend it. Just watch the trailer. But the idea of purging is literally to violently and completely remove something from your heart. It's like quite a radical and strong picture. And if you're like me, you know there are some areas in your heart that God needs to violently and completely remove. Some dark, dirty, gross, broken, unhealthy things that you literally want just wrenched out of you. And then some of you might be sitting here and you're just like feeling vulnerable and you're feeling like a little bit tender at the moment. And the thought of being purged is maybe a little bit overwhelming. You think, I cannot go through a purge now, Grant. I think maybe for you, you need to be washed, you know, washed clean. And in Durban, I think we know maybe better than many people around the world what it feels like to be washed clean. I was driving around this week and I had to go to home affairs. I was doing like a marriage license for someone and handing that in. And my car does not have air conditioning. So wearing a long sleeve shirt. And as I got there, after going through all sorts of traffic, it's like the shirt was clinging to me. And you know when you feel sweaty and you feel hot and you start to feel dirty and you feel like a little bit dried out, like you're becoming dehydrated. And later you get home and you have a shower and the soap washes you clean, and the water energizes you, and you get out of the shower, and you actually feel human again. I think for some of us, we don't need to be purged and go through the violence of that. We need to be refreshed, and we need to feel human again. And I think maybe some of you are sitting there, and you're like, I don't need either. I don't need to be purged. I don't need to be washed. I'm all good. I think hopefully as I speak today, what I'm trusting God for is to almost hold up a mirror to some of us, or to shine a spotlight into our hearts to reveal some of the things inside of us we might not be aware are actually there. And I wanted to share the story of a friend of mine. 
He was an incredibly good friend of mine at school. I probably haven't seen him more than once or twice in the last 15 years. But this guy and I, we used to hang out all of the time. He was one of my best friends. He was a Christian guy. He actually helped me when I first started to follow Jesus. Uh, He was a great example in some ways. The only problem in our relationship is he was a horrific and compulsive liar. He lied all of the time about all sorts of things as a Christian. Can you even believe it? And I think like I remember some of the lies he told because of how ridiculous they were. They were absolutely obscenely stupid. And I think I remember the first time I started to click that this guy was a liar. We were at the computer lab or whatever at Kloof Senior Primary School, and we were playing with Grolia and Encarta. I don't know if any of you remember that. The young ones in the room were like, I have no idea. Wikipedia, maybe? But this was like cutting edge back in the day. CDs with encyclopedias on them. And they were really well made. So you'd put them into the computer. This was CDs, not floppy disks. I won't even get into that. But uh, basically, you'd put it in, and this program would pop up, and you could research anything. And there were pictures and there was text. Sometimes there were animations. It was like a really, really cool thing back in the day. And I remember my friend comes up to me and he's like, you wouldn't believe it. My family just got the new Encarta and it's 10 times better. And he starts to rattle off all of these new features. I'm like, that sounds amazing. I want to check that out. And then he says, you know, it's even better. We got a new computer and the computers are like 100 times faster than the computers at school. I'm like, I want to see this computer. And he says, and you know what's even better? It's purple with a green keyboard. This is where I started to not trust him. And I thought to myself, okay, it's my friend. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. So probably that weekend, we hung out all the time. I go to his house, and I'm like, I keep I'm almost saying his name the whole time. I'm like, dude, where the computer at? I want to see this computer, purple and green. This thing sounds amazing. And he goes, oh, Grant, you wouldn't believe it. Had to go into the shop. Had to get fixed. Like, it's one of those things. Apparently, it's one in a million. It only happens to one in a million computers, and it happened to ours. I go, oh, okay, sure, let's see how this goes. I never did see that purple and green computer. Never did come back from the shop and getting fixed. And what happened is, over time, I started to realize that he lied all of the time. Like, these lies got more and more ridiculous. And it actually, among our friends, it became something we joked about. We're like, oh, there he goes again. And we didn't trust him. You know, if he said something that we were like borderline on, we're like, it's probably a lie. And I just think, I don't know what was making him tell those lies, if he was trying to earn our approval or trying to dazzle us or wow us or what it was. But I feel so bad because it became a joke and he was completely unaware that all of us knew that he was doing this and we're talking about it behind his back. Now, the reality is probably today I'd go up to him and we're guys, so I'd punch him in the arm and say, you know what, dude, we love you. You're such a great friend. Love, love knowing you. Love that we are friends, but everyone knows you're lying. Like, it's just something we all know. It's obvious. I really think you should stop. I don't know why you're doing it. I don't know what, what, what you're trying to prove or how you're trying to impress us, but just stop because otherwise we're going to stop trusting you. And I say that story because I reckon there's some of us here today who actually we are completely unaware of some of the faults in our lives that everyone else around us knows about. You know, we've got these issues that are inside of us that everyone else can see, but we can't see. And we might not even know why we are doing the things that we are doing. I I had like a funny moment um, of this recently. I don't know if you saw Callum's Facebook post this Friday, where he said, Friday, Saturday. Well, Callum and I have been sharing an office since July, the beginning of July, and um, he's kind of working on his web stuff. I'm working on the church stuff. And I've known Callum for years. I think it's over seven years now. We've been like close friends. And Callum, after about a week or two of us being in the office, he looks at me and he says, Grant, do you know that you sigh all of the time? 
And it was like this moment of realization because I've been married to Shell for five years. She's never said this to me. I was in an office for 10 years with people before. No one ever said this to me. I was completely unaware of the fact that I sigh all of the time. And now that Callum has mentioned it to me, I sit at my desk and during the day I let out this big and I start laughing because it's so ridiculous. I did not know about this habit and this thing that I do all of the time, even though everyone else around me was completely aware. And I want to share this because there are some blind spots in our lives and some areas in our lives where we are not self-aware. We don't know what is going on inside of us below the surface. And today I want to help us to think about how we can see what is going on in our lives and how we can be transformed. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 32. Otherwise, the passage will come up on the scripture behind me. But this is a passage about Jacob's encounter with God. And it says this, The same night he, Jacob, arose, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said to him, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God (coughs) and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now, I know some of you here probably know this story well, and you know the story of Jacob's life well, and some of you, you've never heard of Jacob before. So I want to give you a little bit of a context. Jacob was an Old Testament rock star. Like, he was a big deal in the Old Testament. His family were like celebrities in the story of God. His grandfather was Abraham, the father of the faith. His dad was Isaac, and Jacob would be the one who would be renamed Israel, as we see in this passage, and would kind of start the Israelite nation, who become this huge part in the story of God. And on this night, in this passage that we're reading about, it's quite a big moment because Jacob knows that the next day he's going to meet his brother Esau, and they're estranged. They haven't seen each other for years. They had a big fight. In fact, their whole lives have been lives of fighting. They were twins in the womb together, wrestling in the womb, and they've wrestled their whole lives. And now he knows the next day he's going to see his brother, and he thinks his brother's going to kill him. That's honestly what he thinks. So he's kind of sent his kids one way, his family one way, his servants one way, his possessions another way. He's trying to protect everything because he thinks tomorrow could be his judgment day. And what's worse about all of this is he just doesn't know where his brother is at. He's scared and he's alone and he crosses the stream and spends the night by himself. And I wanted to ask you, how many of you in this room have spent one day, two days, three days completely alone with no one else around, no social media, no entertainment, just kind of you by yourself? Anyone? Okay, we've got one. Marion's one. Maybe there's one or two others. Okay, we've got Sean over there. Well, okay, Roger. Okay, maybe four or five. There's a few of us. I've realized over the last few years I'm quite an extrovert, and I sometimes work at home for the whole day. So Shell leaves for work. I'm at home like seven till five, just like doing sermon prep, sitting at the table, laptop, Bible, books, whatever else, praying. 
And then by the end of the day, it's like I'm crawling up the walls. I'm literally desperate to see people and have human contact. And Shell walks in the door, and I'm drained. I'm depleted. I'm a bit down. I have been alone all day. And she walks in, and she gets in and sees me. She says, I've got the crazy eyes, you know. I've been locked up for too long. And there is something profound. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I'm just being honest and vulnerable with you. There's something profound about being alone. And in this passage, Jacob sends his family to this one place, and it says that Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone. There's no one around him, no other people, no one to talk him, nothing to distract him. You know, he doesn't have his phone, no social media, no internet memes, no work to do, no busyness. He's just completely alone. He's got nothing to do. It's just him and his thoughts. And he feels vulnerable and exposed. And into that space of loneliness and quiet, God comes and begins to speak with him and to wrestle with him. And I think when we have these times alone, where there's no distraction or busyness or noise, there's this opportunity and solitude and silence for God to meet us in a, in a way that we can't have when there's so much going on in our lives and we are distracted and busy with the worries of life. Being alone is actually a gift to all of us, extrovert or introvert. But I want to make this one point or ask you this question, because I think some of us have always been a Christian in a crowd. You know, you have always been in a Christian family or at a Christian school, or you've grown up in the church, or you've always had Christian friends. But what happens when you're alone? What happens when all of a sudden you take a new job in a new city and you go to this new place and you've got no one around you as a Christian support? I want to ask, will you continue to follow God then? Will you continue as a Christian then? Because Abraham, uh, Jacob is this perfect example of that. He's grown up in a Christian family. He's grown up with Abraham as his grandpa and Isaac as his father. He's grown up hearing the stories of what God has done, the stories of God speaking, the stories of God's provision and miracles, all of the stuff. He knows all about God. He's been surrounded by God. But now in this moment of trial and hardship, he is alone. And it's almost this question of, is this faith real and personal for you, Jacob? Do you really know God, or is it just a communal, cultural thing for you? Jacob grew up in this family, but now all of a sudden he is alone, and it's just him and God, and God wants to do business with him. And this passage, I think, stands out in the whole of Scripture as one that speaks to us about our need to be alone with God. We cannot just carry on our lives, busying ourselves, filling up our time, and not getting alone to be with Jesus, especially if we want to be transformed. One of the reasons I say that is this. Martin Luther was this famous German reformer, and he said back in the day that every sin comes first from breaking the first commandment. And if you don't know that commandment, in Exodus 20 verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. Every other sin comes from breaking that commandment. And what Martin Luther was trying to say is this. If we lie, we are lying because we have put something in a place above God that is worth lying for. Or if we steal, it's because we put something in a place that we love it more than Jesus, so we are willing to steal to get that. Or if we commit some kind of sexual sin, it's because we believe that that can give us something or satisfy us in a way that we don't believe God can, so we choose it over God. We believe the lie that something else is better or more important than God. So in a sense, what Martin Luther is saying, and in a sense why I'm saying we need to get alone and be with God and get to know Him, is because behind every sin is a lie about God. Behind every sin is unbelief. 
And this is so important to us. So I think probably some of us in this room are thinking, I want to change. I want to be transformed. I want to be made new. I want to grow in the areas of holiness where I'm struggling. So I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to work more. I'm going to make my behavior what it should look like. And actually we're learning here that that's not how we change. That's not how we change. If you want to change, if you want to be transformed, it requires that we get alone with God to a place where He can change our hearts and where we know what He is truly like so we no longer sin and believe the lies and no longer live lives of unbelief anymore. We've got to get alone with God. And in this place of being alone with Him, God comes after Jacob and He asks him this hectic question. Genesis 32 verse 17. What is your name? What is your name? And I read that, and I think you probably read through this passage, and we think, who cares? You know, that's like the most simple part. What is your name? He replies, my name is Jacob. They keep going on from there. We think this is nothing, you know, but this is actually the crux of the whole story of what is going on in Genesis 32. What is your name? And I think all of us have been probably at a cocktail party or like some networking event or a friend's party or something where we don't know anyone in the crowd. And there's a lot of those kind of meeting people and shaking hands and what is your name and exchanging names. And and then the most important question, what do you do? Because we're defined as a culture by what we do rather than who we are. And we have those conversations and then we carry on and we talk through things. Sometimes it's easy and fun. Other times it's like pulling teeth and you make that lie where you say, oh, I'm bursting for the toilet. Just got to, I'll see you later. And then you hightail it out of there and you just get away from that person because you can't stand being with them anymore. But, but this moment, yeah, it's not you. If I've ever gone to the bathroom in a conversation, don't take it personally. I'm not going to be drinking tea after this. But the idea here is this. This is not like cocktail party small talk that God is having with Jacob when he says, what is your name? That's not what is going on here. When God says, what is your name? He is asking, who are you? What is your identity? What is at the core of your being? Who are you? It's a moment of self-awareness for Jacob and revealing his character before God. And I was thinking about this and thinking, this is probably like one of those scenes in a movie where the main character is confronted by something and it brings back all of these memories from his past, this flashback where he sees all of these key moments, good and bad from his life, which have actually defined the person that he is today. As God asks this question, who are you? It's like a sucker punch to his stomach. And he just remembers all of these things that have made him who he is today. Jacob, maybe for the first time, is confronted by the reality of who he is. It's a moment of self-awareness. It's a moment of revelation. It's a moment of clarity for him about who he is, what, what is inside of him. He comes face to face with his sin and brokenness and idolatry and the areas that need to change inside of his heart. And now we don't see this, kind of like the what is your name thing. But when Jacob speaks and tells God his name, this is actually a moment of confessing guilt to God. He says, my name is Jacob. And the name Jacob means deceiver or liar. So in a sense, when God says, what is your name? Who are you? Jacob says, I'm a deceiver and a liar. I'm a fraud. I was thinking about it this week. Um, Rory and Sharon had the last boy in our community, and they chose to name him Deacon, which means servant, something that we've celebrated this morning. Imagine looking down at your newborn baby boy, and you look him in the face, and you're going, oh, he's so cute. I just love him so much. You know what he looks like? He looks like a little liar. looks like a little... He's going to be a con man, this guy. I'm going to call him fraud, little fraudy. And that's exactly what Jacob's parents did. 
little fraudy got bounced on their knee and grew up and he stayed true to his name. And from the moment he was in the womb with his brother Esau, he has wrestled with people. He has conned people out of things. He has lied. He has deceived. He has cheated his whole life. In fact, when he falls in love with a girl, he goes to the father-in-law Laban. And you know what? He deceives his father-in-law who deceives him back. They have a wrestle. And over time, he gets both daughters and he gets a chunk of the family inheritance and gets out of there. This man's whole life has been a life of wrestling and it's been a life of cheating people and now he finds himself in a place where he's wrestling with God and God says who are you and he has to say I am a liar and a cheat and a deceiver and it's like his soul is bared open before God and all of a sudden God has access to the core of who he is and I want to ask you today when was the last time you got alone with God and let God ask you some questions and bear your soul and say, who are you? It's another moment like this in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They know what they can and can't do. There's literally one rule. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes along. And Satan says, "Ah, guys, eat from the tree. Nothing bad's going to happen. You won't die. In fact, you'll know good from bad. So they get excited about this. Exactly what I was talking about earlier. They believe the lie. <coughs> All sin is unbelief. So they actually think God is holding something back from us. God isn't good. We're going to believe this guy. We're going to believe the lie that sin is better than God. And they eat from the fruit and it changes their lives forever. It's a moment of sin, a moment of disobedience, a moment of rebellion. And in the cool of the evening, as God always did, God comes and walks among the garden and he says, where are you? You can imagine that moment. Where are you? It's like God knows. You know, God knows where they are. God doesn't think they're hiding behind the tree. It's not like hide and seek between God, Adam, and Eve. God knows where they are. So this question isn't for his sake. The question is for their sake. God isn't asking where they are in the garden. You know, map it out. Let me know. He's asking cardiographically, where are you? Where are you with me? Where are you in yourself? What is going on in your life? God is exposing what is going on inside of their hearts. I thought for us, Harbor City, as we go through this series, are you willing to let some questions like that probe at your heart? Who are you? Where are you? Where are you with God? What are the things that have made up your life until this point? What is going on with the kind of person that you are? You see, our lives are kind of like an iceberg. Have you got the photos of the iceberg there, Ryan? Sorry, that's my fault. Our lives are like an iceberg. Part of it sticks above the water, but there is so much underneath the water. So much of who we are is under the surface. And actually for us to become self-aware, we need to look under the surface to see some of the things that motivate us. We need to ask the why questions. Why do I do the things that I do? Why am I in this place? Why do I make these decisions? Or as I learned last night, sitting at um, dinner with a couple, Sandra's parents, that still is a landmine. That's an Afrikaans saying, apparently, Marika, still is a landmine, which means quiet is a landmine. And really the gist of it is this, is like if you are looking at a field and it looks beautiful, trees, grass, sun is just setting over this field. It looks beautiful. You don't know there's a landmine under the ground. You just walk and you carry on. And some of us have got these landmines in our lives under the surface of the skin. And what happens is people don't know they're there because still it's a landmine. But then every now and then we touch the point. We say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or affect people in a certain way, and they explode, they blow up, and there's damage and destruction because of the things we've done. 
We need to know what is under the surface, the landmines that are in our lives, the stuff that is under the water of the iceberg of who we are. And we need to let those questions of Genesis 3 and Genesis 32 probe at our hearts. Would you let God ask you some questions today? I thought maybe I'd give you five or six illustration questions that maybe could provoke something of what motivates you or something of what's below the surface. Firstly, what preoccupies your thoughts? What do you daydream or fantasize about and why? What makes you feel the most self-worth or what are you the proudest of? What do you do to de-stress when it's been a really bad day and why? What do you want to be known for? What is the scariest thing in the world for you to lose? What is your worst nightmare and why? So there's a bunch of other things that maybe you're thinking about. The motivations, the stuff that is under the surface inside of our hearts that God is wanting to bring to the top. And in this place of feeling exposed for Jacob, this moment of vulnerability, this moment of just being open before God, God speaks to him in verse 18 and says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. This new name Israel means strives with God. And I don't know if you see what's happened there, but it's like God has wiped clean the slate and given him a fresh start. He's no longer the cheat. He's no longer the liar. He's no longer a little fraudy. All of a sudden, Jacob has a new name, a new identity. He's got a new start. He's been redeemed and he's been redefined. He is Israel, not the liar, but the man who has striven with God, the man who has fought with God and prevailed, the man who knows God. His life has been redefined, redeemed, and transformed. And I was thinking about this passage and thinking, you know what is amazing? That Jacob strives with God. And almost a thought came to me. What's even more amazing is that God is the kind of God who strives with us. God is the God who strives with us. And I was thinking of Jacob, you know, he's just sent off his family. He's sent off his possessions. He's in the desert alone. He's filled with fear. He's uncertain about what the future holds. And God picks a fight with him. He's alone in the dark, and it's like God taps him on the back, and he just starts wrestling with him for the entire evening. It's quite a massive thing, if you think about that. And this is like not God being mean. You know, God could have overpowered him in a second, could have pinned him to the ground and said, okay, Jacob, now you and I are talking. You need to do this, this, and this, and then I'll be happy with you. God doesn't do that. Of course, God, have put the, God could have put the fear of God into Jacob, said, this is what I want from you, and he would have been obedient because he was scared, but his heart wouldn't have been changed. But instead, what God does is he takes him through a process. He wrestles with him through the whole night. You know, he knows Jacob's capacity. He knows what Jacob can and can't do. So God's like really dumbing it down. God is operating at his own strength, at Jacob's own, excuse me, own strength. And God wrestles with him through the night so that Jacob can be transformed for the rest of his life. And I thought about this, God surprising Jacob and wrestling with him because God loves him so much. It almost seems a bit mean and cruel, you know. He's lonely, he's vulnerable, he's scared, and God jumps in there to fight with him, to wrestle with him so that he might change. And I think probably some of us in this room have had these moments, you know, moments where we feel overwhelmed, moments of struggle, and there God has wrestled with us as we feel lonely in the place that we're at. And in those moments for us, we love God still, but we don't necessarily like God, you know? Maybe you've been in church in one of those seasons, you're like, I can't worship, you know, I love God, but I actually can't trust him at the moment. 
He's wrestling with me. This isn't pleasant. I'm not enjoying what God is doing in my life. I'm not enjoying the fight that we're in. God is changing me. He's doing profound work in me. But it's really not a pleasant thing. I love him, but I really don't like him. I think that's probably what Jacob was going through. Jacob is not enjoying this evening, but this, this evening will redefine him for the rest of his life. And I thought for all of us here, we can have the confidence and the courage to wrestle with God because we know how much we are loved. We can wrestle with God in the pain of all that is going on, knowing that God is doing this for our benefit. And I want to say that as we do this, we don't need to be worried that God will be shocked at what he finds. You know, probably going below the surface and some of the stuff that we've hidden down below for years, some of the stuff we don't want to deal with, some of the stuff we don't want to share with others or with God is a hard thing. Maybe some of you are actually like, I think I'm going to sit out the next five weeks of the series. I don't really want to do this emotional, touchy-feely stuff. But actually, we can trust God because he loves us. He loves us. And no matter what he finds under the surface, he will not be surprised by. You know, with Jacob, God says, who are you? And Jacob looks at him and says, I'm Jacob. He pours out the deception and fraud and cheating that his life has looked like. Not like not for God. You know, God is not surprised by this. God knew every one of those truths about his life. This moment of self-confession was for Jacob. Jacob needed to be confronted with what was inside of him. And it's the same for us. God lovingly wrestles with us to bring to the surface the things that we don't actually know are inside. And for you and I, we can look under the hood and see the dirtiest and grossest and worst parts of our lives with an incredible confidence because we know how much God loves us. We don't have to be insecure that if something comes to the surface, God might disapprove of us. He might reject us. He might be unhappy with us. No, no, no. God knows it's there. God wants to bring it to the surface to make us whole and to make us a little bit more like Jesus. The gospel is that we are all more sinful and flawed than we could ever imagine, but at the same time, we're more accepted and loved than we could ever dare hope. And that's huge. You don't have to try and prove yourself. You don't, try and, you don't have to try and live up to a certain standard that you think you need to be or you need to do. Actually, we want to be a church that is vulnerable and honest and open with God about what is inside of us so that we can be redefined, so that we can be saved, so that we can be transformed, that Jesus could fill us with his grace and love and truth. We've got nothing to prove but everything to gain from this. And Robert Murray McChain, this really old guy from the UK, he said, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. And as we go into the series and look inside, we're going to be confronted by some stuff like Jacob that we're not too happy with. But as we look to Jesus, there's a hope, there's a joy, there's a grace, there's a love. His beauty is far greater than what is inside of us. And he is wanting to bring transformation and change to our lives. Now listen, for every one of us here, this might not be a one evening process. You know, for Jacob, he meets with God and wrestles in a night. This might be months of processing stuff with God for you and for us as a church. But Harbor City, I really want to ask us to commit to this process, to get alone with God, to let him ask the questions that he needs to ask and wrestle with us to bring some stuff to the surface, that we would become self-aware and know what is under the surface of our lives, the iceberg and the landmine, and that we would become a community that allows God into the deepest places of our hearts to transform us and redeem us for his glory. Can I ask you to stand with me?
We're going to worship and pray. I want to ask you if you can close your eyes. There are three things I wanted to pray for, and then we can respond to God. I just thought this morning some of us are actually unaware of what is inside of our hearts and lives. And maybe today as I've spoken, you've almost seen some sin or idolatry or brokenness or pain. And actually as God has exposed it, He's calling you to respond to Him and to repent of it. I thought maybe some people here are convicted by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you haven't experienced that in a long time, but it's like God has put His finger on a nerve inside of you and you know that that area needs His power and His work inside of you. And I thought maybe some of you today want to begin to follow Jesus. I want to pray and then you can respond in your own way. But Lord, I pray you would lift burdens from us as a church. I pray you would bring freedom to us as a church. I pray you would reveal graciously like you did with Jacob the stuff that is inside of each and every one of us and give us the strength to actually pour it out before you, Lord God. We know that you are powerful enough to change and we don't have what it takes. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to rain down on us now to fill us, to change who we are and where we are, to help us with the stuff that we can't change. And for those who today want to begin a journey of following you, Lord, I thank you that you would actually help them to feel the purging of their sin and the washing clean with your grace. We want to live for you and passionately live to bring you glory, Jesus. Would you help us to do that, I pray. Amen.